Hi, this is Richard Green, and you are listening to Rebel Radio. What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up, what up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Tina Butterwolf. It's your boy. It's okay. You're checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh-huh. Rebel Radio is going down. What did you say? Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up, y'all? Welcome back to Rebel Radio. I'm your host, Josh Levine. We got a special episode for you today. It's the first of two parts with my man Richard Green. Uh, once in a while, we, we do that. We split into two episodes because we get so much good stuff that we can't fit it all into one, and that, that's what happened here. So I met Richard recently at the Worlds Conference. If you're not familiar with Worlds, uh, go back and check out my interview with Roman Sunder, who's the founder. So I met Richard, and you know, sometimes you just meet somebody that you want to spend more time with, you want to learn more about him. We only met really briefly, but something stood out to me about him, and so that's why I had him on the show. And I'm glad I did, because this dude is uh, crazy smart. He's got some great lessons for us all in this. Richard is the author of Words That Shook the World, a book compiling lessons from the world's greatest public speeches. He's also um, the speaker behind the TED Talk, Secrets, Seven Secrets of Public Speaking, which has over a million views and, um, and offers some great rules for how to be a better speaker. And he's also got the, the website 279forchange.org, which is looking to reshape the way that uh, elected officials find their way into office. Really, really great stuff. Richard's going to give us some lessons that he picked up when he was working for Tony Robbins as his first lawyer and business manager at, at the beginning of his career. Um, the big one, I think, is, is find what you love and do it every day. And he's going to tell us some stories about how he's figured that out in his own life and, and how you can figure that out in yours. Good stuff coming up after our EDM.com track of the week. EDM.com track of the week. That's on the Your Secret label. Get over to soundcloud.com slash your secret for more great music like that. And now let's get into the interview with Richard Green. Don't I promise myself that I won't let you in. I appreciate you making time for this and and you know I'm so interested in talking to you because as I as I learned a little bit from your your sites about what you do, I think you know 
you bring a skill set and tools that make a lot of the, the kinds of people that we have on and make enable them to be successful, right? Enable them to get their art and their messages across and, and all of that. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm fascinated with that and how you do it and, and, you know, where all that's taken you. And, and so I'm, I'm excited to dig into it. Cool. I'm all yeah. yours. Um, well, cool. Well, you know, let's jump in and, and maybe tell me about, so, you know, you're a renowned public speaker and coach. Um, and, you know, you, from what I can tell, you know, you help people, um, like I said, find their success through personal communication. Um, so tell me, let, let's talk about you, though. Tell me about the first time you were on stage. Do you remember that? Wow. <clears throat> the first... <laughs> I, I'm sure I had some incredibly embarrassing experiences when I was in elementary school. Okay, yeah. little Ricky, get up here and tell us about your summer vacation, right? Sure. So those were either so traumatic uh, that I blocked them out of my memory <laughs> or I don't didn't have them. Yeah. But the first time I remember being on stage was when I was 13, okay. having doing my bar mitzvah oh, yeah. and doing my bar mitzvah speech. But then I started speaking. Um, I was in the Speakers Bureau of the Anti-Defamation League when I was just a baby lawyer, just mm -hmm. out of law school for a couple of years and traveling around and talking about issues that affected uh, the Jewish people and yeah. civil rights and things like that. And then uh, in 1983, as a lawyer just living in Los Angeles, I got something in the mail saying, come see this experience participate in this experience and it showed a picture of a really tall guy in a suit barefoot uh -huh. walking on hot coals and this friday night blah 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 it was 1983 in december and it's like okay <laughs> that sounds like a cool way to spend a friday night so i sure. go and turns out it's the very 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 first seminar given by a guy who would go on to become the number one motivational speaker in the history of the world, Tony Robbins. Yeah. And wow. he had given a few, done a few workshops in Canada, but this was his premiere in the United States. Mm. And there was only 150 people, and he was 23 years old, and it just blew my freaking mind. It's yeah. like, wow, and I walked on fire, and I walk up to him at the end of the workshop and I say, you are one of the best communicators I have ever seen. I'm a lawyer in town and I just know that you're going to make a huge difference in the world and I want to help you do that. Oh, wow. And he goes, well, I could use a lawyer. Uh, let's have lunch. Yeah. <laughs> and so we had lunch, became his lawyer. He moved into my law office suite. No way. And we stayed up till two, three, almost every morning brainstorming and when you're brainstorming with Tony Robbins, that means you're listening a lot because mm -hmm. he talks a mm -hmm. lot. He talks fast. And I ended up learning this incredible science called neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, which was developed in the 70s. And it's the science of communication. It's like, wow, I want to I teach that. That sounds like that's way more fun and gratifying than practicing law. So I traveled around with him. I would introduce him. I would do introductory events for him. I started to, you know get some experience as a, as a real public speaker. Mm. And then um, I decided to go out on my own. And I've now traveled around the world. I've taught courses and one-on-one -on -one coaching with 
presidents and prime ministers and Princess Diana and CEOs and mm-hmm. uh, celebrities in 51 countries on six continents. And I have to say That's it incredible. is way more fun than practicing law. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Um, so take it, go back to that, that first day, seeing Tony up there. What do you think you took from that? I mean, obviously, you were clearly moved. Um, Blown away. Yeah. And, uh, and clearly, you know, I, I want to come back to this, but there was also something in you already that gave you the courage to walk up to him and, and pitch to be his lawyer or whatever. You know, I don't know exactly what you had in mind, right? But I just wanted to be a part of what he was doing. Because yeah. I and, and to answer your question, I have a really kind of bizarre philosophy of life. And that is, you know, do what you love and you never work a day in your life. I really don't feel, at least for the last 30 or so years, that I've ever worked. Um, I just literally wake up every single day and ask myself, what do I want to do? What do I want to be when I grow up? Everything is on the table, right? It's like, okay, I want to go into politics. No, you know, I want to start a business. No, I want to go talk about tantric sex. So now I'm starting to teach courses about tantric sex. In in other words, I I, I think I've never lost the ability to be a kid and to look at the world like a giant candy store. And and one of my role models is, uh, he just passed away, was the former prime minister and president of Israel, Shimon Peres. Mm -hmm. And he was asked by Wolf Blitzer, about a year before he died, I said, so what do you do when you're not working? What do you do when you're, you know, when you're, when you're taking time off and having a vacation? And yeah. he looks at Wolf and he goes, what? Why would I ever take time off? I yeah. love what I do. Rebel Radio is supported by Blue Apron. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. They make it easy for you to prepare incredible meals at home, with um, meat, seafood, produce that comes from sustainable sources. They deliver just the right amount for each recipe so there's no food waste. And uh, they make it pretty easy to have a great meal for under $10 a person. It's, it's fast, convenient, affordable, and it's delicious. We've been doing it here. Uh, well, Christy's been doing most of it, but I got in there a little bit, cooked up a couple meals, and, and it's great. In, in under 40 minutes, we're eating, uh, we're having a great time cooking together. Highly recommend you check it out. And um, if you're the type of person that gets bored, there's uh, new recipes every week and they never repeat the same meal in a year. So it, it works out pretty nicely. Check out this week's menu and you get your first three meals free with free shipping just because you're a Rebel Radio listener. So go to blueapron.com rebel. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Go to blueapron.com slash rebel. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Does that, um, is that just a natural thing? Like to stay connected to that, you know, to, to sort of whatever's, driving you at the moment or do you, do you have to work at that? I don't think so. I think you have to work at not doing that. Yeah. I think you have to sell your soul. I think yeah. you have to shut down your soul. So, I mean, so why, why do people do that? 
you're obviously you're you're in a position where you you've talked to a lot of people who are in some stage of that process of selling their soul or 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 learning not to sell their soul or or right you know I, you know Josh it really comes back to the three most important questions that human beings should be asking themselves pretty much every day mm. and that is who am i why am i here what is my dharma is mm -hmm. the eastern way to say that mm -hmm. and what is god and the universe and all of this and those three things drive my life and so who i am is not a corporate lawyer on a partnership path right. in a downtown la law firm yeah. right? i was never that guy yeah. right and i just had honest communication with myself who the fuck am i mm -hmm. right and what do i want this life this gift of however many years i have to be mm -hmm. and you know i think so the truth is i suffered when i made that shift yeah. i mean i i was doing okay as a lawyer and it was like okay i enjoyed some parts of it and i didn't enjoy other parts but i was making a decent living and then when i decided to completely shift gears and go into coaching and public speaking um I went through a period of six months to a year and I had a daughter at that point where I was flat broke, mm -hmm. right? It takes a while, right? Yeah. And I don't regret a second of that, but <clears throat> it's like I wasn't willing to sell my soul to do something other than who I was and what I really felt that I needed to do in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important thing. I mean, you know a lot of artists who have struggled, right? Almost everybody. They, you, Everyone. You know they're making millions of dollars they've got thirty thousand people in arenas and everything right. you go oh that's who they are no they they suffered their ass off yeah yeah and that's where creativity comes from and so sting is a friend of mine mm -hmm. and i'm hugely inspired by him and whenever i see him or i talk to him he's always struggling it's an amazing thing. I mean, here's he's in the Hall of Fame, right? He's got platinum records coming out, yeah. his kazoo. And and he still uh, approaches things with what we call beginner's mind. He still struggles to to tap into that artistic muse and find the deeper, more meaningful thing in his creative soul to bring out. And that's why he's still sting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find it so interesting that that people, people like that, uh, just get that life is struggle. But I don't agree. You see, that's a framing that I completely don't buy into. Okay, go for it. So it's struggle. It's not struggle. Well, I because words matter. Me, okay, fair enough. But you used struggle, so I'm sticking with it. But but I think my point is. Not not that it necessarily needs to have a negative connotation, which I think. Maybe. Let me, let me clarify. It. Okay. So yes, I use the word struggle, and in the moment, it's you're struggling. Right. You know, when I go to the gym yeah. and I'm trying to work out, there is moments where I'm struggling. But the frame that I have around that quote unquote struggle is I am building an incredibly awesome, stronger, more fit body. Sure. I am building an incredibly awesome, stronger, more enriching life mm -hmm. yeah I guess what I mean is that doing that takes work and there are some people like sting who are willing to do the work who are willing to do the work and realize that it never ends I think that's that's the point right that there's this idea 
we have in society of paying dues. Right. But there's an assumption, there's an inherent assumption, I think, for most people. Instant fame. Instant. That those dues end. That at some point you stop paying dues and you start reaping the rewards of No, it's like a relationship. You stop working in a relationship, the relationship dies. Yeah. You stop working on yourself, you you calcify, you just stay where you are. Yeah, absolutely. But that seems really hard for, for most people. So I asked Sting when I interviewed him years ago, I said, you know, what's it, what's it like? I mean, this is, you've had this incredible life and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, you know, it's just all a process. I'm yeah. still in process. Life yeah. is a process. Yeah. And I think that's an, that is one of the ultimate success strategies. And Tony Robbins as well. I mean, Tony's been wildly successful. Yeah. And he continues to push himself and work on himself and to, to challenge himself to grow. Mm-hmm. So what is the, um, when, you, when you decided to go strike out on your own there with, with Tony, why, why do it that way? Like, you know, how did you make that decision? Well, Tony got way too big for me to manage him. Mm-hmm. There were other people who came in and... And I'm not really a manager. I'm not an administrator. I'm not that kind of guy. Yeah. I, I just thanked Tony so much for helping me find a higher path for myself. And we're mm-hmm. still dear friends. And I love him like a little little brother who's a foot taller than me. <laughs> and and it's just I just literally, I, as I said before, Josh, I just wake up every day saying, you know, what do I want to do when I grow up? Right. And then I had gone on. I So when I quit my law practice, it was right after I was best man at Tony's wedding to his first wife, Becky. Mm-hmm. And then I had been given an invitation to go with a guru to India and Nepal mm-hmm. and Europe for four and a half months. And so I sold everything, got in an airplane with nothing except a gold American Express card and then um, while I was there trekking through Nepal, I ran into this incredibly fascinating um, Austrian businessman from Innsbruck who then invited me to come to Innsbruck and I went to Innsbruck and then I met someone there who was doing seminars on neuro-linguistic programming mm-hmm. and I was like this hero to her. It's like, wow, you studied with Tony Robbins, NLP. Why don't you come do a workshop? Yeah. So in 1987, I went to Innsbruck and I did a workshop and there was someone there from Munich who said, why don't you come do a workshop in Munich? And then I went to Munich and there was someone there from Vienna who said, why don't you come do a workshop in Vienna? And that started my career. That's amazing. But you have to, you know, you just have to go with the flow. Yeah. That, that seems hard for people too, I think. You know, we, we're, we're in an a era where... You know, we, we like everything to be planned. You know, you can you can subscribe to a meal plan. You can plan out. How the can... hell do I know on Monday afternoon what I want to eat Tuesday evening? I mean, again, yeah. but I have fights with women that I've had in my life. You know, they want to plan. They want to, they want to you know, book the restaurant or they want to book sure. the vacation three months in advance. It's right. like, I, I'm just not that guy. Do you think that's just a personality trait? Like, are there, is it, have you seen that is, you know, are there some people that are going to thrive with that and other people not? 
Yeah, you know, and maybe it has something to do with astrology. You know, are you mainly earth or are you water? I mean, I'm, I'm hugely water, so I just am really comfortable. I love being in water. I love being next to water. I like uh-huh. flowing like water. So that could be part of it. But, but I also subscribe to the theory of one of my hero, other heroes, Eckhart Tolle, you know, The Power of Now. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of, I think, one of the more important books I've ever read. You know, just everything's in the moment. Yeah. If you are present when you're with your partner, if you're yeah. present when you're playing music, if you're present when you're giving a speech, if you're present 100% when you're making love, it's a whole different experience. Mm-hmm. So I just want to be present. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, what do I want to eat right now? Do I want to eat right now? So I'm constantly kind of flying free and the idea of having a plan, for example, I don't really know what the rest of my day is going to be like today, but I know I have a hundred different things that I want to do. Sure. And when I'm done with this interview, I'm going to go and I'm going to flow and create my day. I mean, I do have a dinner mm-hmm. planned, right? So yeah. there's certain things yeah. because I really, really, really want to meet with these people. So it's yeah. like, okay, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to fix something in my schedule, but for the rest of the day, I'm going to flow. Mm-hmm. And not everyone can do that and say, well, I have a job. How do you do that with a job? Then don't have that job. <laughs> you know, don't have a nine-to-five job. Right. I think uh, if people were really honest and they have nine-to-five or nine-to-six or nine-to-seven jobs, on some level, they're, they feel like they're dampening their soul. Sure. And, and again, some people have to do that maybe for a short term, maybe forever. You know, you have a mortgage, you have five kids, whatever. I'm not saying there's no right or wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just... How do you co-create your life with the universe? And I also believe very strongly that we are infinite beings, that we live forever mm-hmm. and our soul goes on forever. We have many, many lives in many dimensions and that the world is a magical place. Einstein, one of my favorite quotes from Einstein, there's only two ways to look at the world. One is that there are no miracles and the other is that everything is a miracle mm. and okay. I subscribe to the second yeah so so starting out then so you you leave Tony you start out on your own what, what were the big mistakes that you made or or maybe to look <laughs> at it a different way is you know what were the things I mean it sounds like you're on this journey you're expecting to kind of learn as you go mm. what were the big things that stood out for you as like Okay, I don't want to do that, but I want to do this. Like I'm, I'm trying to get to how this, how this particular journey sort of took shape. Wow, that's a really good question. I think I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's a cost to being as spontaneous and in the moment as I've just shared that I am. Sure. Right. Um, how would you define that cost? Because I'm not a planner. You know, <clears throat> I don't have a lot of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You know, the great, my great strength is, you know, I'm very nimble and I can flow and I can change my mind. I can do whatever I want. I create my life in the moment. And, and the downside to that is I don't have an organization like Tony's. Right. Right. The right. idea of structure and planning and all of that is, it's something I probably would enjoy in some ways doing and, and maybe I will do. Mm-hmm. For example, now I've just started, um, I was invited to go back to Israel and to, on a speaking tour there. And I spoke at Tel Aviv University and some other groups and met with some major people in the office of the president. And I, 
of, of Israel, et cetera. And I now have a, a team that's working every day for me, creating a whole infrastructure for me in Israel, yeah. which is this booming market. I mean, you know, obviously in tech and so many other things. And so it kind of feels nice, but I've never done that yeah. because I don't, this fear perhaps of being boxed in, I want to be this free agent. That's where my creativity is. So it's, I've paid a price for that. So I think if I were to do it again, I would probably have listened to some of the people who said, you know, have a plan. I would have, you know, taken a deep breath. I would say, okay, I'm going to spend a weekend. We're going to make a plan. I'm going to hire some people. I'm going to do this thing. But I don't think my life really has been any the worse for it. Mm -hmm. I probably made less money, mm -hmm. but I really don't care about money. Yeah. I mean, I've worked with probably nine billionaires in my life and they're not happier than anyone that I know who's doing their thing, who's not making anywhere near that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, but a lot of the people that you work with are very planned, right? If they're politicians <laughs> or they're business people, they have, you know, they're probably planners in a lot of cases, and they have, they have sometimes really large infrastructures that do a lot of that for them. And do they become prisoners to that, or do they enjoy that and benefit from that? And I think it's a balance. Yeah. So I'm just not willing to, to settle. I'm not willing to have anything impinge on my soul. And, you know, perhaps there's a balance. Yeah, no, it was funny because I, I met this person at the premiere of Genius, the mm -hmm. Albert Einstein thing on National Geographic, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge uh, junkie for anything Albert Einstein. And, sh and I wrote a book called E equals MC squared and the new definition of God. One of my goals is to literally create a new consensus scientific mathematical definition of God. And I no. did it in a children's book that I wrote, but I haven't promoted that children's book. And I was talking to this publicist who go, oh, that's amazing. I want to help you with that. And I now, uh, next week I have a, or no, later this week I have an appointment finally with her, but it took like forever because she was like, you know, she's scheduled and that pissed me off. Yeah. It's like, you were so excited about this. Why don't we meet tomorrow? Right. But I understand that's not the way the rest of the world sometimes works. So that's frustrating for me. I mean, sure. but that's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so you, you, you know, I've seen, I've seen some of your stuff um, online talking about public speaking and, and communication and um, uh Why is that so hard for everyone? You want to know why? It's actually like the number one fear yeah. amongst adults in the world. Sure. It's even higher in terms of statistics than the fear of death. Mm -hmm. And there was a Seinfeld episode where they talked about that. They go, so as Jerry goes, so, so that means at a funeral, people would actually rather be in the box than standing up and giving a eulogy. Yeah. And, and it's a pretty deep answer. Um, it has to go back to who we are as, as animals, as human beings. Um, if you look on all those nature films and everything, Discovery Channel, whatever, Animal Planet, you know, you see babies being birthed from different species and they pop out and within five minutes they're up and walking and they're eating and all of that. Mm -hmm. We take 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years before we can really be on our own. Mm -hmm. And certainly for the first three or four or five or seven years, if our family abandons us, we probably die. Yeah. Which is 
a million times longer than almost every species. I mean, even elephants and whatever. You can't think of another species that's anywhere close. So that's necessary for us to develop this unbelievably sophisticated brain and biology that we have, which allows us to do amazing things. But it means that we're incredibly dependent and vulnerable for really long periods of time. Mm-hmm. And if we don't get the love and support of our the people around us, we literally die. Mm-hmm. So when you have a kid who's six years old and it's like I said in the beginning, little Ricky comes stand in front of the class and you got your teacher and you got your community, right? Your peer group and you're, you're drooling or you're stuttering or your flies open or whatever. And you have this incredibly embarrassing thing. Subconsciously, we actually fear that we're going to be rejected. Mm -hmm. And if we are rejected by our support system, we die. And that's why so many of my clients, politicians, executives, multimillionaires, um, celebrities, literally go into panic attack when they even think about walking on stage. Again, it's deeply subconscious, but the subconscious controls almost everything about us. So that's number one. I mean, it's a deep, deep, deep core fear because of that. But the other thing is it's not taught, mm-hmm. right? And when it's taught, it's taught incorrectly. Mm-hmm. And I'm very proud of the fact that I have helped and maybe was the first one to literally redefine what public speaking is and how to teach it. The old paradigm of public speaking was it's a performance. Okay, make sure you don't put your hands in your pocket. Make sure you don't say ah or um. Right. And don't even look at the audience. Look over their head. Imagine that they're naked mm-hmm. or they're sitting in their underwear or whatever, right? And that's completely wrong. Mm. So I wrote a book called Words That Shook the World, 100 Years of Unforgettable Speeches and Events. Yeah. And if you look at you know, Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton or Martin Luther King or John F. Kennedy or uh, Franklin Roosevelt, all the great speakers, they do the opposite. Mm. Franklin Roosevelt didn't do the fireside performance. He said the fireside chat. It's all about having a, here's the definition. Here's the the actual definition of what makes great public speaking. Okay. Okay? Public speaking is nothing more than number one, having a conversation from your heart, Mm -hmm. not your head. Mm -hmm. Number two, about something that you are deeply and authentically passionate about. Number three, in order to help someone, help a group of people or help the whole world. So when Leonardo DiCaprio gets up at the Golden Globes and he's being honored for a Lifetime Achievement Award and he takes that precious time to talk about climate change, he's not doing it for himself. He's not doing a performance. He's like, hey, I want to help the world. We have an issue here. we got to deal with this. And when you see a great movie, what do you want to naturally do? When you run into some people on a Friday or Saturday, oh, my God, blah, blah, blah. I just saw a movie called The Big Sick, mm. which is f- a Judd Apatow movie. It's phenomen- phenomenal, right? So I wanted to say, oh, my God, you have to go see this. Right. It's this. The, the acting is this. Blah, blah, blah. And that's how all public speaking should be, a conversation from your heart about something you're passionate about in order to help other people. Because mm. I know if you see this movie, you're going to enjoy it. I'm helping mm-hmm. you. I'm giving you a gift. Mm-hmm. And if you approach public speaking as, oh, my God, I've got to do this performance, because if you think of it as a performance, you're very likely going to have what? Performance anxiety. Sure. If you think of it as a conversation with people, 
people don't freak out. Oh, oh my God, I'm so nervous. I'm going to go have a beer with my friend Josh. Yeah. And that's how I approach it, whether it's 50 people in an audience or, or 5,000. Yo, if you're digging this one, I hope you are. Uh, go back in the Rebel Radio archives. Check out my, my interview live on stage with Jennifer Cushell. That was uh, an event we did in LA in partnership with Honda Financial Services. Jennifer is helping businesses figure out how to attract and hire and work with young people. She's also offers tools and resources for young people to, to manage their careers. So some great stuff there for you if you're trying to build your career or if you're trying to build a company that requires you to hire people. Check out that interview, I think you might like it. Uh, but of course, check out this one first with Richard Green. So, so how do how do you help people through that? Right, like. You... By the way, I. So one of the things I teach is nonverbal communication, body language. I love how you give yourself the space to really deeply go in intellectually and also emotionally and check in as to what you want the next question to be. Mm. You know, you're doing very much what I just described. Yeah. You're being very real, very in the moment, very authentic. You're coming from your own curiosity, your own passion. I've had so many interviews where there's this list of questions sure, yeah. and it's like, how do you know that that's where the conversation is going to go? Right. That's called a bad interviewer. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. I... Well, but I appreciate that, but, but I think, you know, you're right. It's a matter of how people are taught, right? And if, you know, if you do media training or if you're a politician you're taught to stay on message and it kind of doesn't matter what questions asked about you you have your platform and and how much regard and respect do we have for politicians yeah not much and there's a relationship between those two things and yet you see a politician and i think barack obama was that you know in 2008 and people go wow this is a real guy mm -hmm. he's authentic bernie this is a real guy he's authentic mm -hmm. and many people thought donald trump hey this is a real guy he's authentic turns out that I think unlike Bernie a lot of what Trump said was not necessarily heartfelt or true sure but in the moment he was refreshing and seemed different and that was exciting to people yeah I mean I think that brings up something you know we have this it feels like this innate desire maybe that's not strong enough, right? We have this burning need to feel that we're being told the truth, even when we know we're being lied to. <laughs> well, I think if you were to boil this say, Richard, when you teach all over the world, what is your number one most important message to politicians, business people, celebrities, everyday people? If there's one message, what would that be? And that is be authentic mm. to be authentic and the reason that's important to human beings again if you look at animal behavior everything is directly or indirectly related to what to survival mm -hmm. right all the defense mechanisms all their skills all their tendencies their habits their whatever relates to survival and authenticity is incredibly important because I mean, that's why we have a handshake Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Hey, I don't have a gun in this hand. Right. Okay. Who knows what's in the other hand, <laughs> which is why I like the Indian namaste, right? You got the both hands in front of right. your heart, right? 
But it's, you know, we're violent creatures at times, right? And if you can't trust someone, they may kill you. Mm-hmm. Now, that may ne- not seem relevant when you're talking to a politician, but maybe it is, right? I mean, if they lie about things and they get you into wars, for example. Absolutely. So, yeah, so the number one thing that I tell, especially politicians, is be authentic. So if someone asks you a question and it's not one of the three talking points that your media trainer told you to focus on, deal with that question and then naturally pivot and say, you know what? And in addition to to that, what I'd like to share is blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then you're being real and authentic Mm -hmm. because the thing about authenticity, it's like being pregnant. You either are or you're not. So even if you're 99.9% authentic, guess what? You're still inauthentic. Mm -hmm. So a politician, a business person, a celebrity who lies at all ever, they're done. Yeah, although although it feels like as a society our relationship with the truth is changing. Because of Trump? Yeah, I mean, I think Trump's a a symptom, right, a manifestation of that. But I think that, you know, we've got, I mean, there's this whole, you know, one of the themes of this year has been fake news. Right. Right. Which itself is a fake concept. Sure. News is news, right? Well, uh, there is fake news, but for the most part, CNN and NBC and ABC and Reuters and uh, AP, those are real journalistic operations Mm -hmm. and they make mistakes and sometimes they do stories that best information they have it turns out not to be true but that's not fake news right fake news is when you say that hillary is running some sort of pedophile thing out of a pizza and you know it's not true i mean that should be a crime that should be a crime right that's not just fake news but i i think that trump I mean, there are a lot of reasons for Donald Trump. And I wrote a piece in the Huffington Post in December, soon after his uh, quote-unquote election. And um, it was entitled, Is Donald Trump Mentally Ill? Mm -hmm. And it went viral. Mm -hmm. And it was... I think I may have seen it, There have been stories since then. But I was one of the first because I I interviewed psychologists and psychiatrists, including Stephen Bishop. Remember Stephen Mm -hmm. Bishop? On and on and on. His wife is this incredibly brilliant South African psychologist, PhD psychologist, and she was livid mm. about Trump. She said, we've just elected a man who has serious narcissistic personality disorder and other things. This is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Right? Anyway, he's, he's a unique guy, but it does expose some of the things that we haven't paid attention to. And the people who love him understand that he's not truthful. Right. But they are so incredibly grateful that someone is, quote unquote, standing up for them and saying, fuck you to the elite, to mm-hmm. the establishment, to the whatever. And so we have some work to do, right? We have some work to do. And that's why I love politics, because it does make a difference mm-hmm. who's in the White House. It does make a difference who's in Congress. It does make a difference who your mayor is. And I really encourage people to get involved in politics. And I've created a whole new paradigm about politics, and it's called billification. Okay, talk about that. So people, especially young people, don't really like politics. They don't relate to political parties. They don't like politicians. Congress's approval rating, you know what it is right now? 10%. Wow. 
10%. I think Hitler has a higher <laughs> approval rating than that. I mean, it's unbelievable. Sure. And it's because we totally have, have misdefined politics. Yeah. So it's, it's a fool's errand to vote for a politician and then sit back and hope that he or she is going to do everything that they promise, whether they're president or not. But, I mean, look at, look at Trump. I'm going to repeal and replace Obamacare. Well, maybe not. You know why? Because you can't do anything by, as one person. Right. There is a magic number for getting things done in the United States. Do you know what that magic number is? I do because of your uh, website. <laughs> it's 279. 279 is the magic number of okay. the United States. If you get 279 people to agree with you, for example, Cory Booker, incredible yeah. senator from New Jersey, mm-hmm. dear friend, mm-hmm. um, he just introduced a bill to legalize marijuana. To have it not be, it's because it's illegal on a federal level, even right. though certain states say it's legal, right? Yeah. So it's a big deal. And Jeff Sessions is saying, hey, we're going to crack down because we're going to force the federal law. I mean, it's a big, it's a big legal issue. Mm-hmm. So if 279 people say, yes, we agree, marijuana should be legal across the United States, it becomes legal across the United States. So our job... Who are we, talking about Congress? No, not just Congress. Okay. So the 279, so if you elect... 218 members of the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. You need three p- pieces of the puzzle to all f- work. 218 out of 435, sorry for all the math, but that is a majority, yeah. right? There is no filibuster in the House of Representatives. So you get 218, the Cory Booker, let's legalize marijuana across America bill get, uh, p- passes the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. Yay, okay? If you want that, right? 60... In the Senate, that mm-hmm. is the, a filibuster-proof majority, right? right? Otherwise, it's 51, yep. okay? But most controversial bills are going to be filibuster, so you need 60. So 218 plus 60 is what? How's your math? 278. 278? Yeah. But the name of my website, 279forchange.us, who is that last person that you need to enroll in the program here? I assume it's the president. It's the president. Yeah. So passes the House, 218, passes the Senate, 60, and has to be signed by the president. Yeah. And that was my argument during the campaign. Yeah, listen, Hillary wasn't my favorite candidate of all time. You know, I voted for Bernie. And, but you look at Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton's going to sign a legalized marijuana bill. She's going to sign a campaign finance bill. She's going to yeah. sign a climate change bill. She's going to sign a renewable energy bill. She's going to sign an equal pay for women bill. Right. And she's going to appoint more progressive people to the Supreme Court. Donald Trump is not. So you can hate Hillary Clinton. But who is she going to appoint and what bills is she going to sign as opposed to Donald Trump? And so so the idea, the revolution in politics that I'm helping to produce here is to focus on bills, not on people. Mm -hmm. So billify. Don't vilify. Okay. So pick a bill that you want. So is it marijuana? Is it equal pay? Is it climate change? What? Pick a bill and then ask your candidates who are running for the House or the Senate or the White House, are you going to vote for this bill? Yeah. Are you going to co-sponsor this bill? Because if not, dude or lady, I'm not going to freaking vote for you. If you are, then I will consider voting for you. Sure. It makes it so simple. So really we're entering an era, if, if people follow what I'm saying, of single-issue voting. What are you, Josh, most passionate about? Because of the, you know how many people didn't vote in the last election? Most. Well, it wasn't most. We had, it was like 55 
0.5% of the people who are eligible. No, of the people who were eligible to vote. 50, okay. Right. So if you're 18 and over and you're not a felon, Got it. right, and you're an American citizen, you can vote. So 55.5% voted in the 2016 presidential election. So the math on that is 102 million people mm-hmm. who were eligible to vote did not vote. And my belief is that every single one of those 102 million people that didn't engage in the political process, didn't have their voice heard, cares deeply and passionately about something. Maybe it's animals. Maybe it's labeling GMOs. Maybe it's equal pay, whatever it is, right? So pick the one thing that you give a shit about the most. Register to vote for that thing. I am registering to vote for saving the bees, Mm -hmm. for example. Then there's the American Pollinators Act of 2017. Ask your Congress, congressional candidates, are you going to vote for that or, or co-sponsor that? If yes, then I will consider voting for you. you know, and then you'll check out the other candidate sure. and whoever is better on this second issue, for example. It's so simple. But it's a redefinition that I think is long d- past due. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. And I think the, um, uh, I, I don't know, it, it feels as, as someone... Uh, It feels that that I think for a lot of people, just that it's a, like a hopeless issue. Yeah, it's hopeless yeah. if you don't get to two seventy nine. So here's the thing. So I was a I was a fellow at the Constitutional Rights Foundation when I was in law school, and my job was to teach government, civics, the Constitution to junior high and high school students. So I kind of my whole life has been about. How do you make politics understandable and accessible and kind of fun and turn it into a game? Mm-hmm. And I had this epiphany about a year and a half ago. Oh, my God, there's a magic number. It's a game. Politics is a game. It's a game to get to 279. So it's hopeless if you elect Barack Obama, who b- says all the things that you believe in, say, yay, hope and change, hope and change. But you don't elect the 218 people who are going to support that hope right. and change in the House and the 60 in the Senate. Sure. So... We have an election, November 6, 2018. We can elect 218 people who agree with whatever it is you are, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, it doesn't matter, who b- agree with you on the one or two or three major bills or issues that you care about. It's going to be hard to get the 60. That takes a couple of elections. And then we have to wait till 2020 if you're not a big Trump fan. But it's possible. It's just freaking math. It's just math. The magic number in California is 63. Mm -hmm. The magic number in the city of Los Angeles is nine. Mm -hmm. Right? So democracy is a mathematical concept. And if people say, oh, it's over, there's money, too much money in politics, well, screw it. Then then vote for the people who are not corrupted by these lobbyists. Sure. Yeah, although I think, you know, what you're talking about, so here's, here's why I find this interesting relative to what you do for a living. Right, because what you're talking about is bringing people, getting people to to be authentic in their communications about things that they're really passionate about, right? Of course. And yet, what we are consistently told in society is, don't talk about politics and religion, right? Um, you know, if you're if you're in polite company or or whatever, right? That those are those are socially taboo or 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 uh, dangerous areas to navigate um you know so electing 279 people is 
I mean, I get the math. I think as a society, we're sort of bad at math, so. <laughs> it's not that hard. This is no, second grade math. That, no, I get that part. But it's but what's different is I personally don't have the power to, to elect 279 people, right? That's... I have I have my vote, which um, I'm not voting for all 279 because they come from different parts of the country, right? Right. And I have whatever my ability to in, to influence other people's votes, right? Which depends on, uh, it depends on my, the persuasiveness of my communication, but it also depends on who I am and what kind of reach right. and influence I have before that happens. Okay, so let me, first of all, let me say the only things that I really enjoy talking about are politics, God, and sex. Yeah. Right? I, right. Those are fun topics. Sure. Right? And, and I've, I gave a new keynote when I was in Sweden a couple of months ago called the Re- redefining the world, the new mm-hmm. definitions of life, death, God, politics, Most and stuff. sex. Yeah. yeah, because I think we have a, we have them all wrong yeah. right? on all of those things. We can talk more about that. But on the two seventy nine thing, you're associated with this little band. What's its name? Uh, with Lincoln Park. I'm kidding. Yeah. Right. How many? How many? How many Facebook fans does a Lincoln lot. Park? It's uh, somewhere around 65 million. Which is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So let's say half of those are in the United States. That means that Lincoln Park's reach just on Facebook yeah. is probably 30,000 people in every congressional district in America and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, in states. Yeah. Right. So you get to choose four of those 279, right? One congressman mm-hmm. per district two senators per state and a president, Mm -hmm. right? But you can become a citizen lobbyist. For example, what would be the one thing, the Josh Levine fantasy bill? If you could do any, if you could make a change in the country, what would that be? That one thing that really... I was hoping you wouldn't ask that as I was thinking about earlier. I don't know what that thing is sitting here. Anything, what what do you care about just in your personal life? Uh, I, I care about. I, I used to as I used to host radio show, and I told uh, you I wanted to interview you. So just for a moment, <laughs> indulge now, me for just a second. See now what we're doing. Um, you know, I care about a lot of things a little. Um, what what probably bothers me the most is is um, our is inequality, is our our cruelty to each other. In what way? Like when you see stories on TV, I mean, what one thing could you fix if, would you fix if you could fix something? Yeah, I don't know that, uh, let's see. I should have a snappy answer. But, um, but, but see, this is, this is the kind of conversation I think people should be having. Sure. Right, even on Thanksgiving dinners and whatever. It's like, let's, let's because that's about, we're now having an authentic conversation. Yeah. I, Richard Green, am asking you, Josh, Right to go into your heart. Yeah, and it's uncomfortable. At, well, no, I may, mean, kind of in a good way. Like, right, and maybe because you haven't done it enough, and because you don't have people that ask you that. Because I hate superficial conversation. Sure. It it it's like I'm just not interested. Okay. So, yeah, let's so let's talk. So I I get it. I get that you that whole inequality or you know man's cruelty to man. But give me give me an example, and then. We'll go through the process of how you can actually make a difference in the world around that. Sure. 
Because so, those are the know. conversations I have with myself every single day. Okay. Great. Um, uh, let me think. So if I think about slavery, if I think about the Holocaust, if I think about um, uh, what's, what's done to women today all over the world simply because they're women, um, in terms of physical violence, in terms of, um, you know, the, the people that are excluded from certain opportunities that, that you and I may enjoy. So let's see if we can focus on something that we can do in in this country. Yeah, because right? it's pretty broad. Right. And so what is what is the number one passion issue for Lincoln Park, for example? So Lincoln Park is very um, passionate about the environment, about sustainability. Uh, they they started a charity. Uh, it's been I think close to a decade. Um, called Music for Relief, which is about helping communities that have been hit with disasters, natural disasters. Right. Um, and then also uh, <clears throat> supporting clean energy initiatives. Right. So I love and have loved for a long time that Lincoln Park is focused on the environment. I mean, I agree with Leo DiCaprio, I mean, and Bill Nye, the science guy, and Neil deGrasse Tyson. I mean, this is an existential crisis. Sure. Right? And it's become a political issue, which only here in the United States, around the world, people get it, right. right? And so there is an opportunity to make a huge difference in the world along the lines of what Lincoln Park has been talking about. I mean, one of the reasons we're having these disasters, these typhoons and hurricanes and everything is because the oceans are warming up. Mm -hmm. Why? Because of climate change. And if we can create legislation in the United States to reduce our carbon footprint, that would make a big difference, not only here in the United States, but around the world. Mm -hmm. And so a dear friend of mine, who is the champion for climate action in the United States Senate, his name is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. He's a senator, Democratic senator from Rhode Island. Every single week that Congress is in session, he goes to the Senate floor and he gives a speech about climate change. Wow. Every single week. And he's, he's relentless. And he has introduced a bill called the American Opportunity Carbon Fee Act, which is an incredible bill. And it puts a price on carbon. So if carbon, whether it's in gasoline, and I would suggest also in meat, right? When you eat a cow, right? That cow is like a car. Right. Every cow puts out as much greenhouse gas emissions as a car during its lifetime. Yeah. So if we eat less meat, we're going to have less carbon. So all of these things, if we make carbon things more expensive, we're going to consume less of them, right? And so that's the thing. And he's got this wonderful plan. So if 218 people in the House of Representatives, right, you're, so say, yes, I'm going to ask my congressional candidate before November 6, 2018, right. are you going to co-sponsor or vote for uh, the American Opportunity Carbon Fee Act? right, by Sheldon Whitehouse, and he says yes, mm -hmm. and the other candidate says no, then boom, I've made my decision, okay. right? Yeah. So now you then put it out there, sell, tell people to go to 279forchange.us or other ways to say, hey, ask your congressional candidates whether they're going to vote for that. And if you crowdsource using social media with mm -hmm. Lincoln Park and other celebrities or whatever, you can reach now in 2017, 2018, you can reach more American voters at the speed of light sure. than we ever have been able to in the history of the world, yeah. right? And so everything is possible now politically 
because of social media. So if you crowdsource 218 people who are going to vote for that bill, who get elected, boom, it passes the House. You crowdsource 60 senators who are going to vote for that bill, boom, it gets passed. And then you elect a president who is going to sign it, boom, we have that bill. So the, the, the revolution that I'm pushing is for people to not just register to vote. That's boring. Mm-hmm. But register to vote for a particular piece of legislation, yeah. become a citizen frickin' lobbyist mm. for that piece of legislation, and make it happen. Yeah. That's exciting. That's the game of politics rather than, oh, oh, it's useless, it's hopeless, it's all screwed up, they're all corrupt. No, they're corrupt because we haven't elected people who are not corrupt. Sure. And I have to tell you, I know a lot of, I, was, I ran for Congress, I was an intern oh, wow. on Capitol Hill when I was in, in college. Yeah. I've worked on seven presidential campaigns in five countries. I mean, I love politics. There are a lot of politicians who are really, really cool people and really dedicated to doing great things for the environment, for animals, for equal rights, for to end injustice, uh, to gender equality, all of those things that they're pushing for. Yeah, I hope you like that. Richard's crazy smart. Thanks, Richard, for coming on and sharing all that with us. Make sure you come back next week for part two with Richard Green. In the meantime, leave us a review on iTunes. Hit us on Twitter at Rebel Radio Net. Find us on Facebook or our YouTube page, Rebel Radio Net. And uh, that's it. Peace.